Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao, and here with me is my co-host, Owen. Hi, Tiger. Thanks for having me. Uh, Owen, do you want to introduce uh, our guest for today, since it's very much uh, in the lane and, and area that you feel most passionate about, energy? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited about our guest today. It's uh, Professor Dan Kamen. Uh, Dr. Kamen is the class of 1935 Distinguished Professor of Energy at the University of California, Berkeley, with parallel appointments in the Energy and Resources Group, the Goldman School of Public Policy, and the Department of Nuclear Engineering. He was appointed to the first Environment and Climate Partnership for the Americas, ECPA, fellow by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in April 2010. Kamen is the founding director of the Renewable and Appropriate Energy Lab Laboratory, co-director of the Berkeley Institute of the Environment, and director of the Transportation Sustainability Research Center. He has founded or is on the board of over 10 companies and has served on the state of California and the US federal government in expert and advisory capacities. Kamen is, the form is also a former professor at Princeton University where he taught in the School of Public and International Affairs. That's just a brief intro into the <laughs> exciting life of Dr. Kamen, and we're really excited to have him here today. Well, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. We really got to shorten that bio to maybe two sentences in, in, in the future or something. I just say professor of energy and just move on. <laughs> professor of energy and five other things. <laughs> so to start, I'd love to ask you about kind of what's on all our minds um, in in the past five months, the past seven months has been a really important topic in the US. The COVID-19 pandemic impacted the world of energy in a myriad of ways. You saw the bottoming of oil prices as national actors refused to, refused to agree on production cuts. We saw overall carbon emission drop as a function of reduced economic activity. We saw the emergence of active government intervention in the economy in nearly all states. But the type of intervention suffered or, or differed wildly from state to state. So how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected our proximity to the global tipping point on climate? And, and what are some steps that um, the US has taken in, in response to the pandemic to mitigate COVID's impact on, on climate change? Well, I actually just uh, wrote a paper in the Bolton of Atomic Scientists where I projected that I actually think the world because of the overall trends and the ways in which COVID accelerated them, I think we've actually already peaked in global emissions. Um, to explain that takes a bit of a backstory, but that kind of has two components. One is that, as you said, our fossil fuel use dropped dramatically during COVID, um, not for good reasons, because of the shutdown in transportation, the shutdown in industry. And so, we saw how quickly our greenhouse gas emissions can go down, but the social and economic cost, of course, is incalculable. This is not good climate policy. This is just bad epidemic policy. But what it does show is that to a lot of people, the energy industry seems like some big, huge monolith. In fact, it's not. If the end use behaviors can be tilted in better, smarter ways than COVID, it actually shows that emissions could go down. And what we've seen since the first of this year is that, is that coal use went down by 10%. And every percentage change in the global use is a big deal. So coal is down 10% since January 1st. Gas is down by 4%. And renewables are up by 3%. And again, on some sort of cost benefit, that's not a good deal. But it does show that the system is very shiftable. What's been interesting to me is the dialogues that have happened around the world, Germany, South Korea, New Zealand, um, not in the US under this president, but in many places, talking about the stimulus packages to get people back to work after COVID would be based around clean energy. Ireland, for example, is saying that companies that are using offshore tax shelters are not going to get COVID, are not going to get their COVID stimulus. So they're using it as a chance to retake some of the social mantle. And so when I look at the COVID lesson, for me, it's a horrible one in terms of people's health and in the United States, which has mismanaged COVID to epic degrees that I predict they'll be talking about 100 years from now in terms of how to mismanage a crisis. 
it also shows that these are the chances when you can build back better. And to do that by putting your new money into the technologies and the areas that you see as part of the future. And very clearly, the climate story says that has to be clean energy. First, decarbonizing our electricity by investing in renewables. And we'll talk about whether nuclear and large hydro count in that mix. It depends where you are. Um, but then also making social justice absolutely co-equal. Because I think one of the big lessons here is that as technocratic and as nerdy approach as we've taken to climate protection in the past, what we've lost in terms of saying a very technically accurate story, we have failed to make this into a social movement, unlike we saw around apartheid and smoking and various things. And so the real opportunity here is to make social and racial justice, not the tailing end of a story, but co-equal in how we decide what we want next. And I think that's an area where, to be perfectly frank, old people have got it wrong. Young people are getting it right in terms of making this a change that you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. In fact, I think you can't get to the climate goal unless you make the social goal right up front with it. Thank you. And I really appreciate kind of the international perspective that you provided. It's been really interesting to see how countries have responded. and. A lot of the stimuli that we, we've seen in, in places like New Zealand, as you've mentioned, and in South Korea and the European Union have seen tremendous green stimulus bills, which has been huge for those economies and, and also very helpful in, in getting them back on track. So yourself and other colleagues published a full list of recommendations for a green stimulus in March, calling for $2 trillion in spending and, and $850 billion in additional spending per year until full decarbonization is reached. So while a plan of this magnitude might not have been realistic given the, the political conditions at the time, there did appear to be some hope that some type of green stimulus might materialize. So in what ways was this a missed opportunity for the US in its response to the crisis? And were there, what were some of the obstacles that you, you saw um, that prevented this green stimulus from coming to fruition? Well, so I actually think that we, we missed the opportunity purely based on politics. We've known for decades now that for every dollar you invest, you get more jobs out of investing in energy efficiency and renewables than in fossil fuels. And that's not because of some inherent superiority. It's just simply basic economics. It's that if you're creating a new area, you get more per dollar invested because you don't have mature industries, you're building companies. And by the same token, when you invest in renewables and energy efficiency, all of the investment is going into human capital. You're building companies, you're building and selling hardware. Whereas no matter how much you might like fossil fuels, a fraction of the money spent simply goes to buy this stuff that you dig out of the ground. There's no intellectual value in that. There's no job creation. There's no raising minimum wages. It's just simply accessing. In fact, when you build a natural gas power plant, 70% of the life cycle costs are the, are the gas itself. The hardware is relatively cheap. You don't need that many people to run it. So that might be good on an energy basis, but that's certainly not a way to re-empower a struggling economy. Totally the opposite if you want to invest in renewable companies, brain power, you know, the kind of Silicon Valley mindset that we see around the world. And so for, for, for my read, it's that lack of political will um, really highlighted by the huge ideological divide in the United States, which almost no other country has in terms of dealing with climate change, perhaps only in some of the OPEC states, Brazil and the United States are seen as an ideological divide. Everywhere else is worried about how do we make sure we don't leave stranded industries behind. They're thinking about it as an economic challenge. Here, it's ugly politics. And so if we get a change of administration in the United States, and if that one truly invests 2 trillion federal dollars, and then 5 trillion when you include the private sector, this will be really about these economic arguments, not about the ideology. And I think that is what gets the United States back on track. And certainly a, a green stimulus package would be upfront. That's something that Vice President Biden has said would be 
central in his his plans, and actually his running mate Kamala Harris has has co-authored a bill um, that would be the first environmental justice bill. So you take those two pieces together, and I think you get a package that would invest in the lowest income workers, put people back to work, do so in clean industries, but hold a fund so that there really is a way to assist people in the fossil industry to take advantage of their expertise and really move it over into these industries of the future. That absolutely makes sense. And, and I enjoy it. You're, you're talking about the transition that the workers need to make in the energy industry and, and the training that is involved there. One other specific recommendation that your group offered uh, was to take equity stakes in companies receiving substantial direct investment, which you guys mentioned includes the airline, fossil fuel, and cruise industries. As, a, as an observer, just reading that, I was a little confused on why that may, may, might make sense in kind of the greater thesis and the greater uh, drastic decarbonization scenario. So I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on, on the reasoning behind that equity stake. Well, it, it's a really interesting question because in the United States and then around the world, utilities essentially evolved as regulated monopolies. And the idea was that there are certain services that it just doesn't make sense to have nine companies providing. You don't need nine power lines running down your street. And so as the United States allowed utilities to evolve from 1880 to today, the perspective taken was we have to have strong regulation, but we're gonna grant these natural monopolies. The upside is it's more resource efficient. The downside is that no matter how well you regulate it, and sometimes we regulate well, sometimes really poorly, you're setting up an opportunity for that incumbent company or companies to slow down the rate of innovation because they're currently making money. A monopoly doesn't want to give up that power. And so the idea of using this federal role of taking an equity share is to have additional lever to make sure that these large infrastructure companies, airlines, railroads, power plants, don't get lazy and don't get lazy intentionally because they want to preserve their, their monopoly market share. And we have seen very clearly utilities and airlines in particular have chosen not to innovate, not to reinvest enough of their revenues back into not only making the product better, but in this case also decarbonizing it. So without that federal stake, we're actually concerned that we would just simply replace one set of low innovation companies with another. And when you look at the incredible successes in Singapore and South Korea and many places where it truly is a knowledge economy. And for all of the challenges they face, one of the challenges is not that their companies aren't innovative. And that's something that we need to recapture in the United States. It used to be the hallmark of American industry. This is a way to get that back on the table. Professor Kamen, if I may just ask a quick follow-up question to your response. Uh, you mentioned that the waste of opportunity is very much due to partisan reasons, and it's an economic argument and not an ideological argument that investing in renewable energies gives you better returns, it creates more jobs, it helps us invest in the future. So, so what is exactly the partisan tension here? Because I imagine if you bring it to Republican senators and you say, listen, this, this thing will create more jobs for your districts, why wouldn't they take on it? And also, what about within the Democratic Party? Do you see tensions there? Because we, when we uh, saw Congressman AOC uh, release the Green New Deal, there was a lot of backlash from centrist Democrats dismissing it and, and saying, what, what even is the plan? So things like that. So where do you see the, the political partisan tension happening? Yeah. Well, Tiger, I think you captured the real issue here. And that is, it's, it's convenient today to kind of ascribe this to Trump's anti-science only investing in his friends kind of world. But we had this partisan politics around climate before Trump was on the scene. So you can't blame him. I think he has made it much worse, but you have to look for some deeper threads. And it's not just a Republican feature. As you mentioned, a lot of Democrats are against the kind of Green New Deal concept. And even when Obama had the House and the Senate briefly in the beginning of his term, we did not get the Waxman Markey deal through. We did not get um, enough passed. And that really highlights that there's a deeper challenge. And the deeper challenge comes down to money. The problem is right now in the world, we subsidize fossil fuels 
to the tune of half a trillion to five trillion a year based on whose math. And those subsidies don't go just to Republicans or just don't, don't go to Democrats. They go to rich people. And so the problem is we have a system where a huge number of the already empowered, whether they'll say it or not, don't want to see the change. So I can quote the jobs benefits and the co-benefits of health and the benefits of a social cost of carbon and all of these kind of nerdy policies. But just like a lot of people won't admit it, but they voted for Trump because they wanted the lower tax rates and the upper brackets that they knew they would get. A lot of people who will say they are for green energy, in fact, won't vote that way or they won't have their politicians like the officials vote that way because they worry about not that green isn't better, but that they themselves may lose out. And so what we really need is the kind of thing you're hearing called for in a Biden administration. And that is anyone with deep fossil fuel ties should not be permitted to serve. Now, that doesn't mean the administration would be anti-fossil fuels, far from it. Vice President Biden has said very clearly he would not ban fracking. And in fact, everyone who works in the energy industry knows that the, that the huge majority of PhDs in the energy field are in the fossil fuel industry because it's been around for 130 years. So these, these funds are available to the rich and empowered. And so what we need is to recognize that there's a huge amount of expertise in the fossil fuel world that we want to enable and move that into new industries. And so the clean energy plan should not be a threat, it should be a new opportunity. And so when you say that we want to invest in energy storage, well, energy storage is likely to be in multiple forms, in batteries, in flywheels, in hydrogen. Guess which industry has the most expertise managing hydrogen? Fossil fuel industry. So there are places that we absolutely want to empower the former fossil fuel industry to move into this new space. And I actually think that you know, the fundamental line, if we can make this work, which we better work, is that companies care about the bottom line. They don't care about whether they're making money from fossil fuels or renewables. They care about green. And by green, I mean money. And if we can demonstrate that the opportunity is in the green energy space, well, then you're just getting a win-win. You're getting green money in the green energy field. And that, I think, has to be the bottom line. And that's one of the reasons why, even though Vice President Biden was not seen as left-leaning as other Democratic candidates early on, his ultimate energy plan is actually the essentially the most aggressive of any of them. He said he wants to decarbonize electricity by 2035. And yes, um, both Warren and Sanders said they wanted it by 2030, but they didn't have as complete a picture, not of the energy sector, but of what politics it takes to really get a winning coalition. And so for all the people who kind of support other candidates, I actually think that the Democratic Party landed on the mixture of leaning ahead and a perspective on what it takes to help to reunite. And the other clear feature is that we are so divided. The issues that you talked about are ones that go beyond energy. We're gonna to have to find some mechanisms to not make the victor for either candidate, uh, then a witch hunt against the others, but a chance to unite. And that need, that requires someone who can think beyond the sectoral. It's interesting to hear your thoughts on the, the clean energy plan that Biden released. Um, and I've, I've one kind of more specific question as it relates to his, his plan and kind of the carbon or the, the green stimulus that you and your group put out a little bit earlier this year and, and some of the difference between those two. But it, as a whole, the, the plan that you guys presented in the green stimulus really revolved uh, around some of the equity stuff and, and uh, environmental justice. And, and one thing that wasn't as apparent in that was, was carbon capture and sequestration. And one thing that is kind of at the forefront of the Biden plan involves that, that carbon capture and, and sequestration. In fact, his site says Biden will double down on research investment and tax incentives for technology that captures carbon and then permanently sequesters or utilizes that capture, 
captured carbon. So I'd, I'd kind of love to hear your thoughts on, on this aspect of Biden's plan and the future of carbon capture and sequestration technologies as a, as a whole. Yeah. So, I mean, this is obviously a big, big topic. Um, when we started working around decarbonization plans two decades ago, carbon capture and storage and geoengineering were really not part of the conversation because we had done so little to deploy renewables that it was very hard to justify investments in anything else. We needed to build up the solar, the wind sector, energy storage, et cetera. As we have waited and waited to get started, it becomes clear that we are gonna to need to go carbon negative as well. If we wanna make the 1.5 degree target, we're gonna to have to have strategies that not only replace fossil with green energy, but ultimately pull it out of the system. Now, Princeton happens to be one of the places where there's a number of uh, high profile faculty who are very positive on carbon capture and storage. And I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll broaden the definition a bit to call it CCUS, Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage. And it's really only that utilization piece that I am personally enthusiastic about. The, and the reason is that by waiting a long time, we know we need to go carbon negative, but renewable energy has become so inexpensive that the game has changed. This year, last year, and the year before, the least cost power plants installed anywhere in the world were not nuclear, were not hydro, were not natural gas, they were solar and wind. That means the world has flipped. We might still be subsidizing fossil fuels, but the world has shifted to one where green energy can and should be in the lead. But we still need to go carbon negative. I personally remain highly skeptical of carbon capture if there's not a use component. And the reason why is that as much as we need to go negative, we need to build these clean energy markets dramatically. And if there's not a business case for going negative, I don't see how that money is better spent capturing carbon than building the clean energy sector. That changes when you get to the utilization because the implicit part of utilization is there's a cash value for the product. It's not just, I can do carbon capture if the carbon price is $50 a ton, but at 40, I won't do it. To my mind, that's a losing deal. No business person says, I'm gonna build my entire case around subsidy. Well, I take it back. Donald Trump has built his whole lifestyle around subsidy, but leaving out a few of these outliers, if you don't have a business case, I don't think you get there. And so if, for example, we can capture carbon and make it into bricks for building materials or road materials or roofing materials, that's a world where a subsidy helps and tickles this industry, but it doesn't define it. And so what Vice President Biden said, I think is exactly the right version. And you quoted the really important words. You said that double down on research and deployment projects that demonstrate the viability. Some people are going to think that carbon capture is much more viable than I am. But what the vice president said is, I will show you the money, you show me the results. If capturing carbon ends up being a moneymaker, it should go ahead. I'll tell you what I'm betting. I actually think that a better deal for carbon capture is going to invest in forest conservation, in reforestation, and in particular, making agriculture zero or negative carbon around the planet. Because if we invest in precision agriculture where we're doing irrigation and we're doing organic fertilizers, not fossil fuel-based systems, um, and reinvesting in areas where carbon can be sequestered in the soil, I think personally that's gonna outcompete chemical engineering carbon capture for the fraction we want it. And no one is thinking carbon capture is going to be more than, say, 10 or 20% of our budget overall. When you look at renewables and then, again, the, the questionable ones, large hydro and nuclear, no one says we're going to need more than 20% CCS. And my bet is that we will get all we want from reinvesting in nature. You dove into a lot of really fascinating topics there. I enjoyed hearing your thoughts on kind of the, the agriculture and, and how... Um, how some of that needs to transition from a natural gas based 
uh, fertilizer system and, and even coal is getting a little bit in the mix now in China and places like that. So that's really interesting to hear your thoughts there. Um, and one, one other kind of more nitty gritty piece of, of Biden's plan that has, has gotten a lot of attention and, and uh, we've even focused on it here in the podcast is, is fracking. And, and fracking is a substantial source of jobs and revenue in, in crucial swing states such as Pennsylvania, where some 32,000 workers are employed in the fracking and natural gas business. So do you think that uh, a ban on fracking might be included in a Biden administration? He's been very adamant that, that it isn't. What, what are kind of your views on this, this topic and how it affects uh, America's energy mix? Yeah, so I'm from upstate New York. I'm from Ithaca. And I have relatives in Pennsylvania in the middle of the fracking belt. And I think what Biden said is exactly right. We don't need to ban it. We need to give a transition path for workers in that industry to convert over time. And when you say that our electricity is going to be carbon free by 2035, what you're saying is that we are going to shift our economic focus to the clean industries. But 15 years is a pretty reasonably long run to make that transition one which is smooth and as painless as possible. And in fact, I would go back to uh, the Obama Clean Power Plan, which Trump, of course, promptly deleted. The Clean Power Plan made each state compete not against others, but against their own baseline in terms of reducing emissions. And kind of lost in the argument was that the Clean Power Plan put aside almost $10 billion for retraining and for retirement packages and things for people who wanted to shift industries. And that deal is one that's not going to come around again. The whole coal industry in the United States has a capital, a capex capitalization value of around $40 billion going down every single day. The fact that the Obama team said, we're going to put 10 billion into a retraining job shifting package, that's a deal that you wouldn't get. And of course, Mr. Trump, who said he was going to uh, build back the coal industry, has done exactly the opposite. So I actually think that this need to ban fracking is actually going to fade. And we're not going to see a need for ban. What we're going to need to see is, look, there's lots of really great technology in this area. In my own view, there's been a lot of very irresponsible fracking where we contaminated waters, where we didn't require metal liners, only clay liners for, for drilling, all these things that should have been at a higher standard if we had a real EPA, which we haven't had for three and a half years. Um, but finding opportunities to put those people in that industry to work, for example, in geothermal energy and in underground storage of compressed air and hydrogen these are places to make a very easy transition that, surprise, are going to create more jobs than an outright ban on fracking. So I see this as a battle for the moment, but one that the overall Biden strategy will give us a much more sane economy. Uh, Professor Kamen, another, um, I guess, more forward-looking, future-looking topic is nuclear energy, and you are also affiliated with the Department of Nuclear Engineering. So Owen, I thought we would spend some time on it because it's a very technical concept. People are fascinated by it, but also you know, somehow fear it. And, and it's a strangely controversial topic in the US today. Uh, this is an energy dense source that had some safety issues in the past, but is widely regarded by experts as extremely safe today. And I've personally read a lot of studies who say uh, without nuclear energy in the mix, it is very hard to really get to the renewable um, kind of carbon-free future in time as we hope to, to do. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on the matter. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so obviously there's a lot baked into this, right? So I'm a professor of nuclear engineering and very interested in the future. Um, when I moved to Berkeley from Princeton 20 years ago, and I polled my big energy and society class, which I did at the beginning of the semester and then at the end, at the beginning and at the end, students were almost uniformly against nuclear. When I do that same poll now, students are uniformly for nuclear. Nothing has changed technologically, largely because we've barely built any new reactors during the last 20 years. So I would say what has happened in the last 20 years in nuclear is very little with the exception of the accident in Japan, the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. That accident pushed Germany 
over the edge to say, we're gonna, we're gonna go to clean energy with no nuclear. California, we already had a ban on nuclear passed in the 1970s under Governor Brown, his first term, because we recycle governors here in California, we're governor energy efficient. Um, but Japan reset, they said no more nuclear and now they're, they're letting it seep back in because Japan does not have a lot of land area. It is constrained on the clean energy mix. So when you look at nuclear, I actually think that if, if we have another accident, which you have to assume we will, that current positive vibe around nuclear will evaporate, just like it evaporated pretty quickly after Fukushima Daiichi and it's gradually relaxed back. What is different now is that nuclear up until 10 years ago was purely in the purview of the biggest companies and federal governments, US, French, Russian, Chinese governments funded, subsidized, however you want to call it, their preferred developers, Tokyo Heavy Industries, Westinghouse, Siemens, they build the nuclear plants essentially as extensions of the government. Now we have a world where you name a billionaire and more likely than not, that individual has a significant financial stake in a new novel nuclear company frequently in the small modular nuclear space, meaning reactors that are between 100 and 300 megawatts, where the standard reactor today in the world of the so-called generation three or generation three plus plants, they're 1,000 to 1,500 megawatts. And what all of these kind of smart billionaires are banking on is that by building more small plants, we can move down the experience curve, the learning curve, and make them cheaper and better. Problem is that it also means you're in a world of less and less regulation because the more private sector, the more they want to push ahead. So I would say that the risk of accidents from these plants goes up, but because they're smaller and hopefully we're learning some of these clever lessons around passive safety, a big, big topic in the nuclear field, that if we and when we have some plants that have problems, they won't have these catastrophic features like Three Mile Island, and the Fukushima Daiichi issues. So where does that put us for the nuclear future? It is certainly the case that the world of zero carbon emissions energy is made easier if nuclear is a part of that story because solar and wind are intermittent, nuclear doesn't have to be. And if we design the plants differently, which unfortunately is not happening yet, a nuclear plant could be tailored to produce electricity during the day when demand is high, and for example, hydrogen at night. Or if there are smaller plants, you could have some that are devoted only to electricity, others to hydrogen. So there's an interesting mix you get by these smaller plants. The problem though, is that no one has said that nuclear is actually going to be price competitive. Even if there's no accidents, even if these companies all take off, while companies of course always forecast their new plant will be better, it's not guaranteed. And one of the challenges is that solar plus storage can now be installed for on the order of four cents per kilowatt hour. And that is base load renewables. Same thing for wind, about four cents per kilowatt hour to build enough storage associated with your wind farm or your solar farm. So nuclear is gonna have to compete against a standard that is dramatically cheaper than the last plants installed in the world, where no one has been able to build a nuclear power plant at less than about 10 cents a kilowatt hour anywhere in the world, except for in China, where there's some real questions about the way in which they've done the math around the prices. So nuclear doesn't just have to earn our respect back in terms of being safe and reliable, but it's got to hit a price point that it was designed to hit, after all, at one point in the 50s, we kept saying nuclear would be too cheap to meter. It never has been. Now, I am rooting for it. I want nuclear to hit these goals because it makes the clean energy equation so much better the more diverse it is. But I think that nuclear faces the biggest challenges. And to be clear, there are a number of places in the world that could get to that standard without. In California, we could clearly get there without. We're down to one remaining nuclear reactor in state, 
which will be closed in the next four years. But we do import nuclear power from Arizona, just like Germany imports nuclear from France. So the nuclear free states are cheating, but by building out more and more renewables with storage, they could get there. But that's not true everywhere. There are places where the wind or solar isn't good enough to get all the way. And so whether it's better grids or adding in nuclear or a more ecologically safe form of hydro, there are other options, but nuclear definitely should be on the table, but they've got to prove it. There's really so much to unpack there, Professor Kamen, and I would just try my, my best to ask a, a sensible follow-up question. So as you mentioned, so since the Three Mile Island incident, which was you know back in the 1970s disaster in, in Pennsylvania, not many new sort of new uh, nuclear reactors were built in the States. And it seems that from what you were saying from conversations and pollings from your students that the public mind are kind of shifting on, the, on this regard, but there is the, the price point that is really uh, holding us back there. So I, I guess just to go slightly more technical when it comes to the, the innovation itself, um, I, I've heard about things that we're not doing fusion anymore, we're doing fission and there's those micro fission reactors and you've also talked about those smaller new uh, modular plants uh and and they're so i so i guess from a technical perspective how far are we from achieving a, a point where it is more uh you know price friendly to, and, and 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 also more technologically safer uh, or is it more just a public stigma or, or lack of investment? Yeah, it's or... not stigma because we don't have a track record. So the last nuclear plant the United States built and finished was in 1996, Watts Bar Unit 2 um, in the South. And so we don't have any track record building them. And so let's start with the technical point and move to economics because you can't, you can't do the like, econ without the technical. The next small modular reactors to be built will be built in 2026 and perhaps not till 2029 when you look at the TerraPower and the new scale plants that are slated to be built at US current research installations in Idaho and elsewhere. So first we need to see those plants operate. Then we need to see, is it really true that they're cheaper? Because a lot of the promise that they're cheaper is that at the end of their operational life, the company that installs it takes the nuclear fuel core away, installs a new one, and then they take apart the core back at their headquarters. So they take it by rail or by ship back home and they extract the material, which is very valuable, and they refurbish it for another plant. Just like in thinking about the cost declines with the space launches of Elon Musk and others, if they can't get those economies of scale down by reusing the rockets equivalent, then you don't get there. And then the prices don't come down. And so there is a, you have to show me for it to happen. Now, if those first plants go in in the later part of this decade, and we don't start to get economic data out for say 10 years, then it is very unlikely that nuclear fission is gonna play a big role in our mid-century large-scale carbon plant. And the reason why is that even if all these plants work and even if they work at good economic cost, that's a bunch of ifs, the world has 420 nuclear plants. Every single one has to be retired by the year 2040, just the regular end of use. So just to replace that fleet of plants is a huge undertaking. And that wouldn't even change nuclear's market share. It's 10% worldwide, it's 20% in the United States. So just to maintain that amount of generation will be a huge lift. And we do not have companies that are ready for that. Between now and 2030, there are 60 nuclear power plants that have been proposed to be built anywhere in the world. Half of them, 30, were built in China. We need experience from those plants in China and elsewhere. We need transparency around costs. All of that's gonna take time. And so I could easily see nuclear being a big part of the story in 2060, 2070, but I think it'll be hard pressed for it to be the dominant piece of technology to meet our mid-century climate goals. Now, that said, the area that is also moving dramatically happens finally to be nuclear fusion. We have nuclear fusion companies in Princeton. We have them all over that are ramping up to be 
technologies, both for power generation, and actually for space propulsion too. The Princeton company is actually banking on the on the on the space market as much as the power market. I would actually go so far as to say that I could see the world being powered largely by fusion by 2070, but half of that fusion would be 93 million miles away, meaning we would be capturing fusion from the sun in our solar, both on the ground and space-based solar, and maybe 30% of our energy mix is fusion that far down the line. That was very sneaky. Um, <laughs> Talking about <laughs> yeah. um, I do have one more follow up about nuclear power, th just thinking about the dynamics and, and who controls that technology. Obviously, it's only been able to be accessed by uh, a few different world powers and, and China is one of them. Obviously, the US is one of them. China is really moving ahead with that. But what on the international stage, is there any possibility that small modular nuclear plants would be available to developing countries or or is, is that technology going to be constrained to the nuclear powers? Um, so it kind of limits the opportunity for international growth there. Well, I think that would be really a shame because for any technology to really be a big player here, it needs to move out of the world of the technical elites and be available. Now, people who are at these small modular companies, they say, look, we are the mechanism for that. Uganda or Nicaragua doesn't need to be a nuclear fuel processing nation. It simply needs to be a market. We will bring the reactor, we will operate it, we will take it away at the end. So one argument for small modular nukes is they do allow that kind of democratizing. The problem in the long term though is that we've learned a very hard lesson from this century of fossil fuels and that whether you like or dislike fossil fuels, technological elites have tended to slow down innovation, slow down open transfer of information. And one of the real benefits of a distributed solar storage wind world is that those technologies can be managed by anyone from your own rooftop. You know, you can have a, a battery in the garage on the wall or your car, solar on the rooftop, same thing for a small business, cities can contract for these, states obviously can. And so you learn more by having more competition. So I would like to see nuclear in the mix. In fact, a world where we were say, just making this up, 30 or 40% solar, 20% wind, 10% geothermal, 15% um, nuclear, 10, uh, you know, 5% ocean energy with storage. That's a world where everyone is competing to be the leader and you're not based on a monopoly. And so my hope is that one of our lessons from this past century was diversity and competition as a friend, not an enemy. Absolutely, and I, and I think the international perspective is really interesting in terms of how we're interacting with, with some of those developing countries and, and our uh, energy mix and, and making sure that they're not left behind technolog technologically. Yeah. One, one thing that your lab has focused on in terms of those developing countries reaching a level of sustainability and reaching a, a self-sustainable aspect is microgrids, which I'm personally very interested in. I, I kind of really enjoy thinking about the off-the-grid concept and, and how different communities around the world are working to, to separate themselves from a traditional utility or even from, from federal, uh, federal lands and, and that type. So in your view, what exactly is a microgrid and, and how is that technology going to be part of the energy future? Yeah, well, I think the, you know, the exciting feature that we've also learned here is that the energy generation part of the story is critical. But information technology, you know, what your cell phone can now do is essentially to manage a utility. What you need to do is transparent and clear and secure billing and receiving. So that here in my house with 3.3 kilowatts of solar on the roof and electric car in the garage and a connection to the utility, I should be able to buy and sell power from them. Just two days ago, we had a power outage because our utility is worried about liability from fires. And so when the wind hits a certain level, they turn off our power. Today, even though I have solar, when they turn off my power, I'm in blackout, which is crazy. 
since I could invest in batteries on the wall. In fact, if I had a battery on the wall, which I'm now installing, I could sell power back to the utility based on a price signal. I could get a message that's purely automated that says, hey, we're running short on supply. We will pay you an extra one cent per kilowatt hour if you sell it to us on the utility. And I can pre-program my smart thermostat so that it turns down appliances at home, it turns off my hot tub or whatever I happen to have, or I guess in certain states, my uh, marijuana grow lights or whatever I might have. And I turn down those things and I sell power back. And that's the world of a, not a producer or a consumer, but in this crazy new term, a prosumer. You can do both. Once you talk about a prosumer, you're in the world of a mini grid because a mini grid could be just my home or it could be my home and the 10 neighboring homes, or it could be all of the businesses in a strip mall in Los Angeles or Austin. And the world that looks to me much more logical is one where every unit can be either a producer or a consumer based on did they install solar on the roof? Do they have a battery business or private? And now you're in the world where you build up smaller components towards that energy system. And it works incredibly well in developing countries. So I work both actively in all of the lower Mekong nations. In particular, we work um, right now very heavily in Laos and in Myanmar. And in, Af in East Africa, I work with all of the country members of the East African power pool, designing models of their grid, looking at how much more reliability will they get by installing distributed generation with storage. And the story keeps coming back again and again. Information technology, the smartphones that we all have, spread much more quickly than old style infrastructure in poorer countries. If you can control your grid, I have an app on my phone that allows me to look at my solar panels, the state of charge of my electric vehicle, and to decide where to allocate power. And of course, it can all be automated if you don't want to geek out and play with it yourself. And that enables countries rich and poor, urban and rural, to think about a system which inherently builds redundancy, builds resilience, because if the grid goes down, all of these local generators can both power their own building, but also potentially sell to their neighbors. And so this is a world where democracy and in particular environmental justice becomes at the front because poor communities have consistently gotten these resources late from big utilities because they're not as profitable. Here's a way where you can invest and make kind of the poorest inner city areas nodes of resilience, but also you can make that energy infrastructure revenue earning and poor communities need that the most. So I see this really as a democracy, democracy and a social and racial justice tool. Just um, wanted to give you a heads up on time. Uh, it, are you free to answer a few more quick questions? Yeah, sure, I'm happy to. Okay, um, so one one research area that I've been really interested in is the the CAISO expansion or the, the expansion of the California ISO to all our listeners, uh, which handles the California grid for the most part. There's a couple smaller um, entities working in and around some cities. So when we're talking about the, the creation of, of this uh, energy independency and, and the producer and consumer all in one, there's there's a lot of interesting concepts that come up, but one is the fact that California realistically, and as you mentioned, has had blackouts throughout this summer. And and twice in its po political history, it's tried to to push through this, this transmission expansion, connecting it to the rest of the West, connecting the grid so that if they need power, they can get it from these other states. As, as someone who lives in California and who experiences this, what is the political backlash? Because there have been serious environmental groups that, that kind of refuse to get on board with this idea, but wouldn't it, wouldn't it be uh, in a more interconnected world where we're able to, to kind of generate some of that environmental and, and racial justice through, um, through that extra, extra power inserted so that these poor communities in California aren't, aren't so drastically affected by things such as like hot weather, the lack of solar power in, in different circumstances? Yeah, no, it really would. Um, and the reasons why the, the plan to so-called expand the CAISO, expand the regional integrator here, have stalled is actually not because 
of the inability to build new connections. California already has connections with all its neighboring states. In fact, we buy power from as far away as Montana, British Columbia, and New Mexico. The challenge has been that the conditions under which California wants to do it are ones that those states have currently not supported. And so California has a particularly green energy mix. We have been running at about 65 to 70% zero carbon energy. So the renewables plus nuclear plus large hydro, both of which, as we talked about, have challenges. Um, but our mix has been very green. And the problem is that if we have connections to other states, but we don't have jurisdiction in terms of what power we buy, a company, for example, in Wyoming that owns coal assets and owns a wind farm could simply send us the so-called green electrons from the wind farm because that's all we'll buy, but sends more dirty power to states like Wyoming where it's not regulated. And what California does not want is to have a situation where we are virtually trading electrons without greening the system overall. And because of, for quite rightly, California doesn't run the Wyoming Public Utilities Commission, this has to be something where we have free access to information to know that purchases we make will not result in this so-called wheeling, sending more brown somewhere else. It'll result in true new net green energy production. And it's really around this very naughty theme because it has to do with both the hardware to have enough transmission capacity, but also enough information to be able to literally track the electrons. That was not easy 10 years ago. Now it's much easier because we have accurate models of power flow. We can also monitor what's going on at each substation. And so I actually think that if we have a Biden-Harris administration, this will be one of the real things that move forward because we have state level regulators called the Public Utilities Commissions. And we have the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that interestingly enough, just last week issued something that one would not have thought five years ago. They just okayed each state to establish its own carbon market. The FERC had permitted or they had tolerated New England states, the so-called Reggie Coalition, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and California, but hadn't supported it. Now what you're seeing is the FERC is literally seeing the writing on the wall. And it's actually one of the reasons why the FERC that used to be kind of seen as purely a, a, a bureaucratic instrument in DC now becomes an exciting place that people like myself would love to have more conversations, talk with, potentially kind of collaborate and work there under a new administration that is thinking holistically about more power and greener power and more jobs for everybody. That was a fascinating response. And, and I've tried reading as much as I can about the California ISO, but it's so convoluted. So I really enjoyed kind of your words there. And, and also thinking about FERC and, and that recent decision to allow carbon markets, FERC in the past, um, the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has not been a, a fan of renewables. No. Um, so why do you think this turnaround happened at this juncture? And, and how do you see that playing out in the future? Because obviously- Well, I actually think this, this one's really simple. It's because the price of renewables is so low. Cheapest power, cheapest new energy in the United States comes from renewables, not from natural gas, not from fossil fuels. So the FERC is trying hard. I mean, their job is to, is to assist a, a well-functioning market. And when the cheapest technologies in the market are renewables, it actually makes sense to price these things out accurately. And you can't price fossil fuels accurately without a price on carbon because there are so many ecological health justice costs of burning fossil fuels. And I think that's precisely why the FERC has gone in its logical direction. The market dragged them there. And so I'm not I'm not super familiar with the terminology, but would and so you're you're saying that the uh, the FERC decision to to uh, not allow sub subsidies to play a role in the pricing of renewables in, in markets such as the the PJM and the New York ISO, I believe, 
like that was probably the right decision from an economic viewpoint? I think it was. I think that, you know, ultimately what we need is something similar to what California has. We have a price on carbon, but it's not overwhelmingly high. It's just a, you know, it's a $20 a ton adder. So it's a couple, it's two cents as an adder on the fossil fuel prices. Ultimately, we need to think not just about the market price, but about the social and ecological impact, which is called the social cost of carbon, something Princeton's also very active in. Um, and that those prices simply need to be added to the market prices for polluting technologies, and again, effectively subtracted, therefore, from clean one, and then let technologies compete. And it's exactly why I think that the battle over fracking will ultimately not look like such a big battle, because once you add that price adder in, you're going to get the smarter, more progressive fracking companies to saying, I think I can make more money by becoming a hydrogen storage company or a geothermal company. And I'm going to move out of this area voluntarily because I see the market for these fuels decreasing. And of course, Senator Schumer has uh, set up the Clean Cars for America recommendation to go to 65 million electric vehicles in this country. That's kind of similar to the path that California is on. Um, and Vice President Biden has said that makes a lot of sense. That's not a job killer, that's a job creator because we're gonna to need to retool and start to build more electric vehicles and probably hydrogen vehicles and think about different technologies for rail versus shipping versus light duty vehicles. These are things that accelerate the transition. And again, they make this interplay between green electricity and green transportation just kind of one and the same. So we're thinking about our cars ultimately as appliances, plug into your home, use them like a toaster. Uh, Professor Kamen, is that your endorsement of the soaring share price of Tesla's stock? Would well, you... I don't endorse any particular <laughs> stock share. I leave that to, you know, you have the, uh, the Paul Krugmans and others at Princeton who are <laughs> on that side of it. But I do think that what has happened in Tesla is fascinating to watch a company that was seen as a luxury only car company now be higher value than some of the classic big three companies highlights how this change is possible. And it's possible in ways that actually builds jobs. Now, I may have my own differences with some of the strategies that Mr. Musk has taken, but the more companies in this space and the more competition for those low or zero carbon transportation miles, the better. My last question for today, and I know Tiger's got one more, but I'm, I'm thinking about the future here, thinking optimistically, and you've been uh, in and out of Washington before. Would you ever consider going back with maybe a change in administration moving forward? Easy answer. Yeah, I would love it. Um, I really enjoyed working in the State Department. I was very sad I had to resign, but I felt after the Trump policies, absolutely. And given all the things we've talked about, you know, the places that I think there's gonna be huge things to get done is not only in the Department of Energy and EPA and Department of Transportation, um, but also we need to rebuild the Office of Science Technology Policy in the White, in the White House. Um, and Vice President Biden and Harris have said they would set up a new White House Office on Climate and Justice, and I would be happy to serve in any of those. Uh, Professor Kamen, I live around three blocks away from, from the White House. So uh, it, this January or, or early next year, you know, maybe we can, we can grab coffee nearby. So. <laughs> We're doing these things in person is a thing again. So yeah, um, but no, I'd be happy to go back. And you know, I loved working at the World Bank. I loved working in the State Department. Um, and I think that one of the biggest challenges is not going to be this technical story. I think there are so many options, but the U.S. has lost so much international standing under Trump, not just the failed trade war, but the total ignorance of the ability to work our way out of these things in terms of technology and investing in social justice. I think that the U.S. is going to be on the hook to demonstrate that we are a responsible partner, if not leader again. And that makes that you know, the next administration's job is, is doubly important. But I think that the plan that's been laid out is one that really gets you there. And because so many US states, California, New York, Washington, New Mexico, Hawaii, have all already committed to 100% clean energy before mid-century. Despite all of the, the horrible 
bickering in DC, there's already a really important minority that I think will quickly become a majority to enable the US to do that. But yeah, these are the challenges. So look forward to having one of those, um, you know, DC coffees. Uh, Absolutely. Are, are you optimistic or, or pessimistic? Because um, it's very interesting. We interviewed Professor Jason Bordoff, uh, who is the director of Columbia's Energy Center uh, a couple months ago. And he presented this, I, I wouldn't say pessimistic or optimistic statistic, but he was saying that, which I emailed you about and you somewhat disagree, was, was that if we took seriously the target of lowering global temperature by 1.5 degrees, uh, which is what nations committed to the Paris Agreement, and, and carbon emissions would need to go down each and every year for the next decade by 8%, which is what happened when everything shut down during COVID. So it, it seems to be very hard to, to really get there. And, and the tone of this interview has been fairly optimistic. So I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you are optimistic or pessimistic. Yeah, no, I, so I, I, I think, I mean, optimistic very easily because I don't think this is this hard. 10 years ago, the prices weren't there for renewables and storage to be able to say, we can, we can drop in and win this story. Um, and what you said is real. If you want to do the whole thing in 10 years, then you need 8% a year. But you know, the science community said, we need to be there by mid-century. When you do that, we're talking 3 or 4% a year, sustained every year, no dips, no, no, no trumps, no none of these kind of disastrous um, bumps in the road. And so I view this much more like a marathon than a sprint, but just like a marathon, the most critical 10 miles is the first 10 miles. You set where you are, you set your energy level, you set the expectations as you start the race. Even if Heartbreak Hill is coming later, if you don't start in a way that means you're feeling good, it's really hard to win. And so in my view, we have all the technical tools and what we haven't done is, in, is integrate environmental justice and international justice and respect into this conversation. That's the job that comes next. That's really setting the, the hard ground rules. And so when we wrote this paper in 2017, the one that gets quoted all the time is we have 12 years to save the planet. We didn't mean you have to get to zero carbon in 2030, although that would be nice. I am for it. It meant that we need to be on a path so that the institutions are in place so that a bad election result, you know, kind of a Trump result, doesn't derail the process. And just in the same way that Trump was unable to rescue the coal industry, in fact, he didn't do anything to help the coal industry. Um, we need to know that we've set up institutions so that clean energy is going to be the investment path going forward, both domestically and internationally, and both in rich and poor, black and white brown and Asian communities. Those are the things that we need to do. And that's why I think this next term in government is so critical. It, I think, will define that optimism. Just like we look back to what FDR did in the, with, with the New Deal as defining number of institutions. And I often quote um, his Secretary of Labor, the first Secretary of Labor, she went in and made a huge difference in putting together a work agenda, the 40 hour work week, minimum wage, um, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. That's exactly what this next administration can do and should do to get us back where we are. And because the US is such a creator of good ideas, clearly a few bad ideas too, um, but overall good ideas, I think we're well stocked to do it, but it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. So it's not about being alarmist or whatever, it's about setting the tone so that future generations can, can start at a point where the standard yeah. is already good. So in fact, I think that the real issue now that renewables can be so inexpensive is to use them to repair other problems. The Black Lives Matter racial rift in the country is huge. I mean, I have an African-American daughter, my, my wife's African-American, and I would say the racial divide will look back. I hope it's as easy to Fix as some people think. I don't think it is. I think we have we've demonstrated that despite some advances in the 60s, we haven't solved this fully yet. Um, this moment can't be one where we get short-term excitement around racial equality. It's got to be a long-term. But I think that the real issue is that we have to use clean energy to repair these social divides, investing as much or more in poor communities, which is why Biden said 40% of his federal $2 trillion goes to um, to, to environmentally uh, marginalized communities, but we have to invest back in nature. We need to talk about and 
use clean energy so that we can return land to nature. We've seen some examples in England and Northern California where we have returned land, we have torn down dams, we've returned rivers to free flowing. We need to do that and make clean energy not just about swapping out dirty for clean, but about giving back to nature. Otherwise, you kind of win the battle, but you lose the war. And that, I think, is going to be the next challenge. Adaptation, reinvesting in natural spaces, giving people rich and poor access to nature. That's what renewables can get us. That's, I think, the bigger goal. Or, or as President Trump would say in the debate, he loves the clean water. Loves the, loves the clean water. He does love the clean water, but you know, <laughs> we know where flies land. <laughs> okay, so I guess the, la the last question, since the name of our show is uh, Policy Punchline, what would be your punchline for, for this interview? I think it's a real straightforward one, and that is that we've been fighting the climate battle with one hand tied behind our back. You want to win the battle, you got to punch with two hands. One of them is clean energy, the other one is social justice. We've been fighting with one hand. And that's why you said previously in interviews that this is finally evolving into a movement where environmental justice, racial justice, social justice, everything is coming together rather than a scientific movement. It is, yeah. it is becoming a movement. So It's got to be social. And that's a bigger story. Yeah. Professor Kamen, thank you so much for joining us today. Owen and I had such a wonderful time talking to you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you guys for doing this. Really appreciate it. And Owen, thanks so much for co-hosting the show with me. It's always great to do it with you. Of course. Thank you, Tiger. Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please uh, visit us on policypunchline.com. You may learn more about Professor Dan Kamen's work on his website and at Berkeley and beyond. We look forward to continuing some of those important conversations going forward. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.